on this holiday weekend filled as it is with remembrance of our nation's history. Let's do a little of our own history. You know how I love to do that for you. We're going to go way back beyond the Declaration of Independence and the founding fathers of this country to the founding fathers of our religion. Let's go all the way back to Abraham, who was known as Abram before his encounter with God. Abraham is the father of the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and our friends in the Baha'i community invite us to remember them as also within the Abrahamic religions. Representing more than 4 billion of the world's 7.7 billion people, it all started with Abraham, whose wife, Sarai, in the Hebrew, we call her Sarah, was barren, or so they said. You know, the complete burden of fertility and reproduction was heaped on women back then. And the Supreme Court of the United States had just reminded us that some things never change, at least for women. This patriarchy aside, the scriptural narrative says that God smiled on Sarah as an old woman, and she named her son Isaac which means laughter. She was beyond childbearing, and so when she had the child, she named him Laughter. And Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was also barren when she conceived, as was Rachel, the wife of Rebecca's son, Jacob, which makes a perfect trifecta for the patriarchs of the faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of four billion people, all married barren women. The Bible may just be trying to tell us something about the enterprise of faith itself, that where there is no life, no possibility of life, God creates life. To understand the book of Obadiah, we have to go back there. We have to be reminded of these patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, because we need to be reminded that when Isaac's wife, Rebekah, miraculously conceived, she found twins within her womb, and from the very beginning, there was trouble. We've just read some of those verses. From Genesis 25, the babies jostled within her. They were fighting before they were born. And she said, why is this happening? And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples within you will be separated separated. Might have been the understatement of the millennium. The first son was named Esau, and when he was born, his brother Jacob came out grasping onto his foot, holding onto his heel, the Bible says, from the Hebrew word akeb, which sounds like Jacob, akeb, Jacob. The word means heel, and a variant of the name Esau is Edom, from the Hebrew word adomi. You can hear Edom, adomi, which means red. The Bible says Esau was a hairy fellow, a man with a ruddy red complexion. And one commentator says, we have in a nutshell the entire history of humanity seen from the angle of rivalry, from the moment of birth, and the rest of the story emphasizes the difference between the two brothers. One is a man of action, his father's favorite. The other is a thinker, the darling of his mother. And there was rivalry from the very beginning. 
When we get to the writing of Obadiah, which is difficult to date, but uh, is placed by most scholars after the fall of uh, Jerusalem to King Nebuchadnezzar in around 587 BCE. That and the Babylonian exile that followed. We talk so much about the Babylonian exile. I keep telling you, you have to understand the Babylonian exile if you want to understand the Old Testament. You have to understand exile and return from exile, captivity and liberation. Most scholars set Obadiah after the fall of Jerusalem, 587. But by that time, enmity between Jacob and Esau was already centuries old. Now, while many scholars believe the patriarchs are more legendary than historical, if we try to put a calendar date to their lives, it would have to be 17 or 18 centuries before Christ. So if Obadiah was written in the 6th century before Christ, we're talking about the Hatfields and McCoys on an epic scale. A thousand years of feuding and fighting between these two brothers. Jacob's name was changed in the course of his life to Israel, one who contends with God. You remember the story? He wrestled on the bank of that river with that man all night long. He wouldn't let him go, and he said, you got to give me a blessing. And the man said, I'll change your name. It was an angel. And he changed his name to Israel, which means one who contends with God and prevails. So Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So the sibling rivalry that began with Jacob grasping after Esau's foot and then deceiving him out of his birthright, the enmity between brothers became the warring hatred of two nations, Israel and Edom, for centuries. The animosity between Israel and Edom is famous in the Bible. By one accounting, Edom is mentioned 120 times in the Hebrew Bible, virtually all of it in a negative light. A professor named Juliana Clausens says the narratives are told from a pro-Jacob, pro-Israel perspective. The portrayal of a God who sides with the powerless, the weak, the younger brother. Edom is always cast in a poor light. We first learn of the animosity between the nation of Edom, Edom and Israel in the story of Moses who goes to Egypt to free the Israelites from the Pharaoh. And as they are wandering in the wilderness, they come to Edom on their way to the promised land. And they send a word to the king of Edom, and they ask permission to, to travel through the land of Edom. And the king refuses them entry. It just goes downhill from there. Now, I'm having to skim a lot of scholarship this morning, which you're glad about, I'm sure, and shorten the story a lot. But here's the scoop for today's lesson about Obadiah. Obadiah's prophecy, these 21 verses, take the form of what Hebrew scholars call oracles against the nations. This was a well-attested form. It's attested across the Old Testament. It's a Jeremiah a polemic, a bitter condemnation of the nations who happen to be Israel's enemies. It's common in the Old Testament, oracles against the nations, condemnation of Israel's enemies. Scholars say it's probable that these texts originated during times of war as the preachers of the day took aim on behalf of the politicians and the military leaders at the enemies of Israel 
to justify their warfare by saying basically, well, you're evil and we're God's chosen and God's going to take you down. Justifying our war by calling out our enemies. Oracles of the nation. It's almost all of the, the book of Obadiah. The full text of Obadiah makes it clear that the prophet accuses Edom of helping the Babylonians sack Jerusalem, or at the very least, of looting the holy city after the Babylonians come in, destroy the city, take off most of the best and the brightest people into exile. This perspective that Edom helped the Babylonians, this perspective has been held by many scholars. One called, named Bruce Cresson says, historical evidence makes it difficult to explain the intense hatred of the Jews for Edom unless the Edomites did actively participate in the destruction of the temple in 587. The Edomites were responsible, working with the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem. But in a battle of scholarship, J.R. Bartlett takes a contrary view, and he says this. A review of the complaints made against Edom shows very clearly that Edom has been falsely maligned. The roots of Judah's hatred go back to the monarchic period, go back to King David, 500 years before the Babylonian exile. Edom played no direct part in the events of 587 B.C. The only firm piece of evidence, now listen to this, the only firm piece of evidence suggests that some Judean refugees found sanctuary in Edom. Rather than being enemies of Israel, some Judeans found sanctuary in Edom. For the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah in 587, Edom cannot be held in any way responsible. The prophets and many of their less critical followers owe Edom an apology. You get it? One group of scholars and the oracles against the nation, the prophet says the enemies of God have fought against Israel. And apparently, more contemporary archaeological and textual evidence says that's not the case. They even helped Israel in their time of need. Now, not being a Hebrew scholar, I'm in no place to judge between these two, but the latter position makes a lot of sense to me, and this is what I want you to hear this morning. It's not difficult to imagine that Obadiah, a product of his age, was communicating a theology built on existing animosity, whether this was historically accurate or not. A theology built on oracles against the nations is tantalizing for any people craving to justify their nationalistic mythology. You know, God has blessed us, and woe to the rest of you. Have you heard that anywhere? Obadiah is hardly the only preacher who has found it convenient to have a good enemy. Pointing the finger at someone else, the self-righteous comfort that this brings is so much easier than honest reflection. But hidden within Obadiah's xenophobic rant is a truth that his people needed just as much as we need it today. At the end, those words I called your attention to, for the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. 
as you have done. Now, Obadiah is talking to Edom. I think think Obadiah's people need to be listening, and we do too. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your head. Edom, Israel, America. What you sow, you shall also reap. The inversion of the golden rule is universal truth. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So despite all the twisting that Obadiah may have done with a deeper wisdom of biblical truth and justice, justice for all people, despite the ways we may pervert the gospel for selfish means, God's truth will always be heard. It comes out even in a Jeremiah, maybe a false Jeremiah against the nation of Edom, as you have done. It shall be done to you. So let us learn from Obadiah. First, we have to tell the truth. All of the truth. We have to learn our history rightly. And then we have to build a theology on honesty and truth, painful though it may be. And then we have to work hard for truth and justice, difficult as it might be to achieve, believing as Obadiah did, this part he got right, that with or without our theology, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You get it? With or without theology, with good theology, with bad theology, no matter how you tell it, the truth will come out and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. I believe that. May it be so. There's nobody that enjoys a good biblical timeline than Russ, more than Russ. But I always appreciate hearing it in those terms, and then thinking about it in layered ways. Here we are on a 4th of July weekend where we celebrate our nation's independence, freedom, even as we have asylum seekers sitting in our congregation that we are trying to bring in to the fold, and then I get the everyday part. When my big extended family gets together, which is every big holiday. It's the remnants of five siblings, 16 first cousins of which I'm the youngest, and then all the spouses and children of children. So it's a lot of people, maybe 60, 70 people to gather. So at Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and Easter, it's just not a real family get-together without playing, you guessed it, family feud. We have every edition that has ever been put out. While the young ones are outside playing tag football or spike ball, the ones that have long given up running around sit opposite of each other on divided teams for my cousin Almeida to always play host and ask the questions. We clap to see who is the fastest and who has the fastest and best answer, and then The winner of the clap confers with their team to see, do we want to try to guess the remaining answers or do we pass to the other team? Sometimes we feud about best strategies. And sometimes we feud about the weak links on our team. 
but we always end up being very loud and laughing a lot, and no real feuds have ever ensued from family feud. When we sit down with a couple before performing a wedding, we always ask two questions. What do you want to leave behind from your family of origin? And what do you want to bring with you from your family of origin into your new family? 36 years ago, I knew right away that one thing I wanted to bring from Russ's family into our new family was the way that Russ's family opened their home to everyone. There was always room for more at their table. And I wanted that in our new family. But for my family, I knew I wanted to bring a sense of the importance of family. There was nothing more important to my parents, especially to my father, than family. So between our two families of origin, I hoped to build a family of our own that both lifted up the family as central with a healthy dose of welcoming the outsider. But all families have their very own dysfunctions, plenty of things that we want to leave behind, and some of them are real doozies. I'm not going to name Russ's family's dysfunctions. Or mine. It's almost hard to comprehend how Obadiah is speaking to a situation that began with brothers after years and years of feuding through the generations that spilled over into nations. So it's frightening to realize the potential impact of one feud. What we learn from this situation into which Obadiah speaks is that division multiplies. And that's scary when we consider how much feuding is going on in the world and in our country and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our families. And frankly, in a lot of churches. Finding common ground is perhaps the hardest work of all. We end up yelling at each other or shutting down completely, both of which are detrimental to relationship. Feelings get hurt. Things are said that weren't really meant. Buttons are intentionally pushed. Memory isn't easily erased. And then we continue to play out the scenario in our minds over and over and over again, making the initial transgression repeated over and over and over again. And science tells us that our brain has no way to differentiate between the actual occurrence and the memory of the occurrence. So every time we replay the feuding scenario over in our minds, it's almost as if it is happening again in our core. After the overt argument, disagreement, or feud is over, how many times do we replay it, adding to it, 
changing the outcomes, saying all the things we wish we had said, sometimes while we're not even speaking to the other person anymore, until we are consumed by it. And then we tell another person and we rope other people into our feuds until the division multiplies out of control. We see it all the time on both micro and macro levels. The little piece of good news shining out of Obadiah is a reminder, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. In other words, you reap what you sow. If you have done harm, likely harm will befall you. If you have spouted words in anger, that is what is most likely to return to you. But, but if you have sown seeds of reconciliation, it is highly probable that reconciliation will ensue. It's not a definite, don't hold me to it. I intentionally said likely and probable. It is most certainly worth a try. Someone recently told me that forgiveness was the most selfish act of all. She had forgiven someone who had hurt her deeply because she needed it in her own being because the anger was eating her alive. So she decided to forgive. Some scenarios. Rachel, at war with her mother, put an end to several years of silence with a telephone call announcing a new grandchild and an invitation to see her. Paul, whose father forced him out of the family business because he disapproved of Paul's hippie values, came home when he learned his father was dying in time for them to tell each other, I love you. A sister called a sister-in-law after 17 months of not speaking and announced, we're making up, it's enough already. Three fictional accounts that can be replayed over and over and over again of reconciliation. And reconciliation gives us hope. I found an old article in the LA Times about family feuding. In it, the writer says that feuds start over money, or power, or, value, or values, or politics, or a real or imagined insult. They exist between parents and children, brothers and sisters, relatives in all combinations. Some are poignant, some are absurd, and many have gone on for years. To those of us on the outside, family feuders can seem pathetic, petty, irrational. Why can't they, for heaven's sake, just kiss and make up? But often, a family feud is about a lot more than we or the feuders readily recognize. The article points out, often a family feud is the eruption of a lifetime of buried feelings, of rivalries and resentments of all kinds, of unhealed hurts stretching all the way back into childhood. And sometimes, all that is needed is for one feuder to reach out and make a gesture. But sometimes that gesture must be made again and again. And sometimes ending a relationship may be the most healthy thing to do. But I was grateful that this article 
didn't call it God's way, but how I hear it, sometimes ending a relationship may be the most healthy thing to do, but even the most bitter family feuders should leave the door ajar and retain the option of ending a feud, a God of second chances. And then the writer points out there is another option, not to let the feud get started in the first place. Feud avoidance is easier if we don't expect the impossible from our relatives and if we can accept them as they are and not demand that they be what we want them to be. But for a feud not to start in the first place, you have to decide it's not going to start. There's nothing quite like feuds over inheritance. Just note Jacob and Esau as the lesson for us all. My siblings and I got to practice this. We did not agree over what was left of my parents' estate, but we continued to try to see it from the other's perspective. And with every meeting over four years, four years of trying to figure it out, we started every single discussion with, what we know for sure is we are not going to fall out over this. Four years. I feel like perhaps the best impact I can have on the world is how I treat those who are closest to me. How I disagree with another how I speak about things that matter most to me, how I engage issues about which I'm most passionate, how I seek reconciliation, how I ask for forgiveness, how I receive an apology, how I participate in relationships, how I respond. These are the things that make for peace in my life. And if I believe that division multiplies, which I really do believe, then I also have to believe that love multiplies and reconciliation multiplies and hope multiplies and forgiveness multiplies. If we can start micro level, could that, would that impact nations? If Jacob and Esau can teach us anything, it would be that feuds multiply, and I want to live in a world where reconciliation multiplies. So let's start simple. What relationship needs mending in your life? Just start there. Obadiah reminds us that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's always an important reminder. Evidence to the contrary, we are not a divided world. God's world is one. It's one of goodness, hope, peace, joy, and love. And we would do well to remember that and practice it in every relationship, trusting that how we live and how we act really does matter in bringing the whole world together. Freedom 
will only come when reconciliation multiplies. Freedom will only come when forgiveness multiplies. Freedom will only come when hope multiplies. And freedom will only come when love multiplies. May it be so in us and through us. Amen.